You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Military families have been displaced for two months because of fuel-tainted drinking water. At a town hall meeting held by the Army last night, one woman said her hotel bill has exceeded $7,000. The meeting, which was partially in person and also streamed online, was meant to update families on the plan to return them to their homes and to address fears that were triggered by a security camera recording that had been circulating on social media this week. On it, Army staff discussed the discovery of an irrigation system that was not on the plans for flushing and was described by a military commander as high hazard. Here's Army Major General Joseph Ryan trying to provide some context for the conversation. The edited video clip alarmed many families who were left wondering if they had something else besides the fuel in the water to worry about. When she went and saw that irrigation system that they didn't know about beforehand, that's what she said was bad because she didn't know the ramifications of it at the time. And as a scientist, she is trained to take the worst case scenario up front and work back from there. That's exactly what she did. Did she concern some people? Absolutely. That's appropriate. And, you know, we talked with a military spouse this morning about the video clip and the uncertainty of being in a Waikiki hotel for so long. She was out to be uh, she was to be out of the hotel by today. But now that has been extended indefinitely. Today we have to go rekey at the front desk, and we're just waiting to hear back uh, when the all clear is from Department of Health to go back home. What's the latest? Because I understand that your home was one of the ones that's being flushed and tested. Well, they flushed all the homes, but then my home's going to be one of the ones that's getting sampled. And so what have they told you? When, when did that happen? What was that process like? I think it was three weeks now. Basically, they just came in and they they were there for about 30 minutes and they just took a bunch of samples from my kitchen sink and then they said, okay, we're done and that's it. And so what's been the follow-up? Nothing as of yet. So you've got no indication whether your house passed the test? <laughs> no, but I know that they've been posting the results online on the uh, joint base page, but I, I haven't seen anything yet. And so what's the process? Who's supposed to contact you directly about the results? I'm assuming they're just going to post um, the information online. All right, so you've not heard anything directly from the company that manages your neighborhood? No, the only thing, uh, I filed a dispute with them um, to receive our housing allowance back, but they told me that um, they're not able to do that because my house is technically not considered uninhabitable, even though there are tenant rights, and one of them being, ha- you know, having access to clean water, or you know, to utilities. And but, but they don't consider what's going on something that uh, makes it fall under that category. They basically called, or they told me, you know, that the the Navy's not considering this, uh, considering your home uninhabitable. So our hands are tied. There's nothing that we can do. They told me, we're just going to mark this as resolved. And if you have any more comments or you have any more questions, you can give us a call back. Well, I know at last night's town hall meeting that the Army held, you know, there were lots of questions uh, that uh, families had about a snippet of ring video, I guess it was circulating on social media, about uh, a discussion that the uh, military folks were having about having discovered an irrigation system that wasn't on the plans. And they were trying to figure out why this was the case and what to do about it. Um, uh, Had you seen that video? I did get a chance to see that video. I also saw the response that they gave out saying or trying to explain about the this is bad comment um, that was heard. I know the audio is a little muffled, so, you know, it it is hard to, you know, it's kind of like you're hoping that's what they're saying, but that, I mean, you can clearly hear them saying this is bad, but you can also hear them say the word hazardous. And, you know, that's not something you want to be hearing. I think it also said something about it's something else. You know, nothing's been disclosed. You know, they're all about being transparent and, you know, telling us exactly what's going on. But, uh, you know, I guess now that maybe it's something else, I, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen. When we last talked, I think you had uh, mentioned how it was difficult because you had pets and you were having to go back and forth daily between the hotel and your uh, and your in your own home just to take care of them 
and you have a young child, so it, it, it's not easy. It's not. You know, I, I also have to come over here, uh, you know, to shower and uh, wash bottles. And, um, I, you know, the water scares me. I, I don't, I, I might be paranoid at this point, but my water had both the, the sheen and the, and the smell. So I, you know, I just, I don't, I don't want that in my body. And I also really don't want it in my, my daughter's body, especially because something like this happened. I don't know if it's the same exact thing, but over in Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and people are having all sorts of health problems now. And I just don't want that for my daughter. And have you noticed any more fumes, any odor of fuel since you you know go back and forth? Have you had the opportunity to run the water in your unit? So whenever the water is run in my house, I get really dizzy and I get a headache. Um, so I don't turn on the water at all. Um, when they were doing the flushing, I got the same sensation. I, I get the same feeling whenever I go to gas stations. And even when I drive through AMR, I get like a feeling in my sinuses. So I just avoid turning on the water just in general. Other than that, then you're just going to plan for an extended indefinite stay at that Waikiki Hotel. Yeah, I mean, I hope that when they're saying that it's safe to go back home, that that's the case, because eventually we're going to have to go back home. I mean, we can't just stay here forever. I would hope that they give us other options at that point, but, you know, I I don't know. Um, It's just sad because my husband's away and I want to be here when he gets back, you know, and it's, it's not the cheapest, you know, to go from here to, to mainland or from mainland back here. Yeah, well, I know the Army did say that they were, you know, uh, making accommodations for families who wanted to go back uh, to the mainland uh, because of this situation. But, you know, there, there were families who were talking about how, yeah, the hotel bills are, you know, 7000 plus, and the Army assured that if they wanted their water tested again, that they, they have now equipment that can provide results, uh, turnaround results quicker than where we were two months ago. So they were trying to reassure the families. But I guess so at this point, then you're just waiting to find out if you got the okay from the Department of Health. Yeah. I I hope that, you know, everyone isn't just trying to rush this. If it is, that uh, you know, everything comes back clean and safe again, and that they're not just trying to get us all back into the home without it, you know, being 100% safe. Especially after, you know, the the video that came up the other day. We've been hearing from one of a couple of military moms who we've been checking in with periodically since the start of the water crisis at Red Hill. At the town hall meeting last night, the Army said it hoped it could begin returning families into their homes by next weekend, provided the state health department gave the all clear on the water sampling, so that timeline is all subject to change. Civil Beats reality today is with reporter Christina Jedra. She's been busy. She's got a couple of stories online today. One of them is about uh, our drinking water, and another is uh, uh, tracking the court saga around the public corruption case at Honolulu Hale. Good morning, Christina. Hey, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, so let's talk about the the water uh, review that's underway. What were we able to find out? Sure. So, um, Back in 2017, the Hawaii Department of Health lowered the safety threshold for total petroleum hydrocarbons. It's basically like a class of chemicals connected to diesel fuel, um, that saying basically you can you can have more of it in the water and it will still be safe. Um, and the, the Honolulu uh, Board of Water Supply objected to that at the time, but DOH went forward with it. Now, uh, again, Board of Water Supply is saying that should be reconsidered um, given everything going on with the Navy's water contamination crisis. Yeah, that's a a real big concern since everybody's waiting for the all clear from the Department of Health. 
Uh, you also have another story today uh, about the uh, the court drama that's happening uh, with the indictments of uh, the city's top city lawyer, um, Donna Leong, as well as the managing director and the former uh, head of the police commission. That's right. So um, a few days ago, Donna Leong, the former city attorney's attorney, um, filed this request to the court to take the deposition of the former city budget director. Um, She believes that the city budget director can basically exonerate her client, that he can explain everything was um, above board with the settlement agreement that was made with former chief Kealoha, which is the the center of this case. So um, what's interesting is that yesterday prosecutors filed a response to that request and saying they also believe the city budget director will benefit their case. (laughs) So both sides seem to think that the budget director's testimony would be helpful to them, but prosecutors are um, objecting to the deposition request um, for Nelson Koyanagi, the budget director, um, saying that he may not be competent to testify um, because he has some medical issues. Right. And, uh, you know, I I know that uh, we've been hearing that there's there's some recordings of some conversations uh, between uh, the parties involved. Um, But it's just kind of interesting to see this play out in court in these filings. Right. So the parties are basically accused of a conspiracy. And there are these recordings where they're talking about how to issue the severance payment to former Chief Kaloha. Um, Basically, the plan, according to prosecutors, was to take money from the um, police department's salary fund. And then um, when that was depleted, um, they'd move funds from a a different fund for vacant positions. Um, And this would be a way to circumvent the city council's approval process. Normally, they have to um, approve um, and vote on lawsuit settlements. Um, And according to prosecutors, the the defendants were trying to get around that. Um, Now, all the defendants have pleaded not guilty, and this is ongoing, so we'll see. But, um, you know, we're already seeing some of the defense's strategy in these filings. Yeah, and uh, as far as then the um, ability then to get to um, Nelson Koyanaga, I mean, big question, right? It's going to be up to the judge then to decide? That's right. The judge will make a ruling on whether um, he'll be deposed. Um, But according to Lynn Panagakis, who's Donna Leong's attorney, she's saying time is really of the essence and that Nelson Koyanagi may not be available for trial in months or whenever the trial does happen. Um, So they're hoping to to secure his testimony as soon as possible. And we did see a video uh, deposition taken in the earlier case with... um uh, Chief Kealoha's mother, uh, mother-in-law, I guess, uh, Florence Puana, uh, in that case, because she was also not in good health. Right. So it, it has been done before, um, and we'll have to see if it'll be allowed in this case. And hopefully this former city budget director can provide some clarity on how this all went down and kind of what officials were thinking in, in terms of, you know, was it allowed, was it not allowed? So we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, but it seems to be... Well, I don't know. The testimony. Uh, who's it really going to help, right? Which side? Uh, that's the question. But thanks so much, mm-hmm. Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her stories on civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the HOMA shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Steve McIntosh, author of The Presence of the Infinite. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about 
the spiritual experience of beauty, truth, and goodness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Naamea Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. It was two years ago this month that we first connected with Honolulu businessman Johnson Choi. He's the head of the Hong Kong-China-Hawaii Chamber of Commerce. His business dealings in Asia had just come through a rough patch with the Hong Kong protests and subsequent crackdown by the government. He had been looking forward to better times for the Lunar New Year, but the pandemic was just starting its grip on the world economy, and there was so much uncertainty. Flash forward to 2022, the year of the tiger begins with hopes of prosperity again. But Choi says he's just surviving. We caught up with him this week in San Francisco on the start of the Lunar New Year. Everything's on hold. We've been checking almost every two, three months with uh, Asia, Hong Kong, China, Singapore. Uh, because the way they locked down the country and the quarantine requirement, uh, two to three weeks, uh, it's almost impossible uh, to, to go back to Asia uh, in person to do any business. So everything is being done by phone or by Zoom. But there are a lot of things you have to do face to face that look at stuff, and those are keep getting pushed back. Yeah, so and we your, don't know. Your business, I mean, you uh, deal with spirits and wine, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Hong Kong and, and also China. consultant work too, you know. So uh, spirit wine import, uh, export from California to. To China, you know, when Trump raised the tariff, uh, he basically killed most of the export of wines to, to to Asia, to China especially. But then when Biden took office, uh, he really did nothing. So, so the high tariff is still there. So, so everybody's facing the same challenge in California right now. But what is business like, let's say, in the restaurants, uh, you know, in the hotels, you know, where you would normally sell alcohol? Well, restaurant, I can only talk about domestic side because I do have clients in the restaurant business, both in uh, San Francisco and Hawaii, you know. Uh, since so many restaurants have closed down, those that have bite the bullet to stay open, surprisingly, the business actually uh, is much better than pandemic. So I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's some people are doing well, some people are, are no longer in business. That's a problem. And the biggest problem right now actually is finding the workers. Uh, in the not the restaurant, but the whole hospitality business, even in Hawaii. So I don't know how that will turn out in the coming months and years. As far as the companies here in Hawaii that are doing business in Asia, I mean, it's slim pickings then. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's bad. You know, even in like places in Hong Kong, you know, used to have like fourteen thousand restaurants. You know, we estimate about one third had already uh, closed down because of the uh, pandemic. So it's bad. Uh, China side, surprisingly, you know, is uh, doing quite well. You know, the economy grew by 8.1% last year. It's uh, number one in, in the world. So they are counting on mostly domestic uh, business, in uh, internal consumption, we call it. So China side on the on a lot of uh, restaurant and hospitality side is doing well. But the problem right now is for us to export stuff to them. Uh, we are still competing with other countries that... Uh, China offered them um, much lower tariff uh, than United States because you know uh, when U.S. raised the tariff on China, China uh, reciprocate. So, so we're not doing each other any good. So that's the problem. And so you know you're there in San Francisco. What's the snapshot uh, with the businesses there? Uh, it's a similar situation, uh, you know, in Hawaii. You know, like if I if you walk down the Manaka Street on Chinatown in Hawaii, you know, you will find some shop clothes and some shop actually, you know, you have people staying in line to buy stuff. You know, San Francisco is the same. You know, most of the restaurants or eatery that provide economic food, not the high end type, uh, are, are doing quite well because you know after a while people stay home and cook at home. They get tired of their own cooking, so they eventually have to go out. To buy stuff, and so in San Francisco, actually, the the better restaurant, you know, you will see restaurant full, completely full during the weekend. In fact, like a lot of dim sum place, the restaurant, like uh, if they open at uh, 
ten in the morning on Saturday. If you are there at 10 o'clock, the restaurant is already completely filled. So people cannot travel outside of the United States. Actually, those people accumulate a lot of money and also vacation time. So they they spend it domestically. You know, then they pick uh, the nicer restaurant to go to for those people. And so what's the mood with the Chinese New Year on us now? Well, I know the Chinese New Year, the <laughs> Chinatown used those uh, facade, you know, those uh, Chinatown. Like, uh, we don't have that for two years already. Uh, San Francisco, they have one. Uh, actually, last weekend, you know, I was there. Oh, it was jam-packed with people, you know, it's, uh, surprisingly. And, uh, and and most people have uh, have masks on, but I, I see people, you know, uh, look like tourists that they don't have. But uh, so a lot of the, like the typical Chinese here, they, you know, Chinese organizations, they have a lot of big banquets. Most of them are not going to do it this year. So in that respect, aspect, it's actually hurting a lot of the bigger restaurants that count on the Chinese New Year banquet for a lot of societies and like Chinese Chinese welcomers and, and people like that. So, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, I mean, even here, you know, Chinatown had to cancel their plans, and uh, there are some other events that are Chinatown scaled down. before pandemic had problem already because they, they couldn't raise enough money to pay for the police and, you know, the, the garbage people to pick up the trash. So, so actually, a uh, year, a couple of years before the pandemic, they had to cancel it last, uh, last minute. And then last time I was there was, I think, was either 2019 or 2018. And it happened there, I'm in Hawaii, and I took a lot of video. And I guess that was the last time, like, two, three years ago, you know. So I don't know. We are hopeful. But uh, uh, COVID-19, you're one variant after the other. So hopefully this is the last one. So, yeah, what are your hopes then for the for 2022? Not every country is uh, vaccinated, you know, so they don't have the herd immunity that like, some country has, like China. China right now is uh, 87 or 88 percent people already in, have the vaccine. So the problem is unless you shut down all the incoming people from uh, Africa or, you know, even Europe. You don't know because as long as the people are not uh, vaccinated, you know, the variant may, may, may change and uh, be mutated to a new one. So my hope is uh, all the major countries in the West and also in China will provide more vaccine for the poor, what we call them the global south, the poor nations, Africa. So they get all get vaccinated and hopefully they will, you know, put you know, put an end to it, you know, hopefully in the next, you know, six or eight months, you know, but but we are not hopeful. The Olympics are just about to, you know, kick off and, you know, lots of concern because there have been some positive cases of folks that have been yeah. coming in. So lots of worry. Well, you have to look at the attitude, you know, like for China, if they discover like a hundred cases, they call it, they are in panic mode. They take the whole city of 10 to 12 million people to the testing. Every single one, no exceptions, right? <laughs> we talk about 100 cases now. And here in America, you know, like a few weeks ago, we have 1.3 million cases in one day. And nobody seems to really care, right? So it's attitude. And I look very closely on how China managed the Olympics. They call it a closed-loop system. Basically, everyone comes in different countries are isolated in the pocket. Okay? So... So they are very aggressive in managing it, make sure the people who go to compete not go to, you know, infest each other. And everybody, you know, has to be safe. So so it's going to be starting on this Friday. So I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch the opening ceremony. It's going to be, a, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be a very good one, like the 2008, you know, lots of surprises and a lot of grand performance. Yeah, and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, things get better for everyone. It's difficult to do any planning mm-hmm. you know, when they don't know what happened next month or next 90 days. You know, so. Well, we wish you come fa choy and uh, we'll keep our yeah. fingers yeah. crossed for that business okay. improves. Okay, so hopefully next time we talk again, everything back to normal, okay? All right, <laughs> and, in, and in person. In person, too. Okay. Yep. Aloha. Okay, okay. Okay. Take care, okay. Johnson. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. And that was Johnson Choi with the Hong Kong China Hawaii Chamber of Commerce, who we talked to uh, on February 1st. He's looking forward to putting the past two years behind us and getting back to business in Asia.
You know, this week, the nonprofit Maui Nui Marine Resource Council hosted a webinar to share the results of a study on the effects Maui County's 2018 polystyrene ban had on its beaches. Polystyrene is a type of plastic used to make foam food service containers, the kind that a typical plate lunch comes in or that the restaurant gives you to take home leftovers. Supporters of the ban touted the environmental benefits, saying it would protect wildlife, reduce plastic waste on our beaches and in the ocean, and help to combat climate change. So, did the ban have its intended effect? Well, Dr. Jennifer Lynch is the co-director of the Hawaii Pacific University Center for Marine Debris Research and one of the study's researchers. She sat down with the conversation's Russell Subiona to talk about whether the ban has had a significant impact on Valley Isle beaches. If you could give us just kind of a timeline from the signing to the study. Actually, we, we began the study before the bill took effect because okay. we wanted to capture the before the ban, the pre-ban data from the beaches. And so once the bill was signed in 2017, it kick-started a couple of emails between me and partners over on Maui. All of us are a part of the Hawaii Marine Debris Action Plan, which is organized and facilitated by NOAA. And so we have really good communication among all these partners that are involved in marine debris removal, prevention, and cleanup. And so I reached out to the Maui partners that, that I knew well and said, hey, are any of you guys already out on the beaches? Can you go ahead and package these up and send them over to us so that we can do the polymer identification to look at which ones are polystyrene and which ones are not? And then we lined up the students here at the center that would be analyzing the samples for us during those first few months and had an army of, of students. And then the samples started arriving and we started doing what we do, which is cataloging plastic debris and analyzing it in the, in the chemistry lab. Just to take a step back for our listeners, from your perspective, why why did Maui County feel the ban on polystyrene was necessary? What kind of impacts does that type of plastic have on the environment? Well, first of all, it's made out of fossil fuels. So we have to mine that out of the earth. And that is what we typically burn for power and releases greenhouse gases. But that's true of all plastic types. So polystyrene isn't necessarily worse than the other plastics in that realm, but that is something that people are concerned about. If we can use a renewable resource for our takeout containers, that could be better. Quite frankly, I struggle with the the logic and the reasoning of picking on one particular kind of plastic because all plastics are mined out of the earth as fossil fuels and turned into, um, not all, I shouldn't say all, there are bioplastics that we can make out of corn. We can make polyethylene out of corn and bio-based products, feedstocks. But polystyrene is something that we have to use styrene in the process of making it and styrene kind of has a bad name and so there is that and then people are concerned that it has certain plastic additives in it but so do the other formulations of polyethylene and polypropylene so you know as a as a scientist that knows a little bit more about polymers i scratch my head sometimes wondering why are we picking on polystyrene instead of polyethylene <laughs> yeah, it seems like such a, a small percentage of the wide spectrum of plastics that are harmful, right? That's true. It, it seems like That's such true. a small, yeah. like such a small actor. So one thing that I did kind of gather from your presentation on Wednesday, that this is just kind of like the first step, or this is just really a small step, and there should be more action taken. And, and there are other types of plastics that are causing just as much harm, if not more harm. If you can share some of the results of your study, I know you mentioned that the study hasn't been published yet, but you did share some results in your presentation. Can you share some of your findings? Yeah, so I, I started showing the results of the identifiable items that we found on the beaches. So on the windward beaches, the far majority of the debris is fragments, and we can't really say what it came from because it's just a small little 
piece broken off of something that used to be bigger. But there are identifiable items, and I find that to be really impactful data when you're thinking about bans, because on the windward beaches, what we're seeing is fishing gear, and not the kind of fishing gear that comes from local fishing. It's distant international foreign fleets that are producing this fishing gear. And so if Maui County or the state of Hawaii or the United States of America wants to reduce or prevent that kind of plastic trash coming to our shores, we need to look outside of our borders because that's where it's coming from. On the leeward side, there are things that we can do on a local basis. On the leeward side, what we're seeing a lot of is cigarette butts, and other smoking related debris. And those are already banned on the beaches, but there's no enforcement for it or limited enforcement or awareness campaigns. And so if we wanna keep cellulose acetate, which makes up cigarette butts, which is a, a plastic product, if we wanna keep that off of our beaches, somehow we need to make beachgoers more aware and maybe increase enforcement to make that policy stronger. Plus, you know, society should stop smoking. It's not good for you. <laughs> Throw that one out there, right? <laughs> um, and we also see a lot of beach toys and things like that on the leeward beaches. So just some more awareness, you know, pick up what you bring to the beach. And while you're at the picking up your own, go ahead and grab some of the trash too. Throw it in the bin. That was some of the results. The, the next step of the results I showed was... The abundance of plastic debris on the beaches, the five beaches that we studied, and the leeward beaches have much lower quantities, like 10, 10 times less than the windward beaches. So if we want to put into perspective the totality of plastic that washes or is found on our beaches, it's on the windward shores. So if we want to make the biggest impact of plastic reduction on our beaches focus on the international foreign fishing fleets because that's where it's coming from. So the next thing that I showed was the debris amount comparing the pre-ban and the post-ban. And on those five beaches, we only saw one or two beaches that had a significant reduction in debris on the beaches after the ban. But that significant reduction was still very minor. It was a small reduction. You know, it's not completely re removed off of the beach just because we banned polystyrene. And then the reduction that actually happened, we have to look into the polymer identification and the polymer composition to see if it was made from polystyrene itself. So when we did that, that's our next data point, is looking at the polymer composition across the five beaches, pre-ban versus post-ban. And we use some pretty sophisticated statistics to look at that very diverse polymers that are found on the beaches. And once we did that analysis, we did find two or three of the beaches had a change in polymer composition through the time periods, pre-ban versus post-ban. But then when you dig in deeper to those results, it wasn't always polystyrene that was driving the polymer composition changes. Kealia Beach on um, the leeward side, the south shore of Maui, probably has the best evidence that the that expanded polystyrene ban did make an improvement on that particular beach, but it's just not showing up yet on the other four beaches. And it's doubtful that it will ever show up on the windward beaches because that's expanded polystyrene foam from food takeout containers is a really small percentage of what we're seeing on the windward beaches. So it seems like the ban has had a, a very small effect across the board. What do you think is the next step to be able to impact the larger groups of plastics that your study found to be a higher percentage of, of the overall trash? Yeah, um, well, I've been saying for a couple of years now that I think 
we very much need to look beyond our borders and determine where the sources are of the majority of the debris. We have a study going on right now that is doing that. We're wrapping that up, that study up. So stand by for those results. But we think we have a pretty good handle on where all the derelict fishing gear is coming from, at least the majority of it. And once we uh, release those results and, and share those, I really do hope that you know, the United States, the state of Hawaii, and counties get involved in um, dealing with the biggest bulk of the plastic trash that's washing ashore in Hawaii and raise their voices, have conversations internationally. I know the state of Hawaii already has great relations with a lot of Asian countries where a very large percentage of the plastic in the North Pacific is coming from and really make it a priority to have those conversations. Jen, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was Jennifer Lynch of the HPU Center for Marine Debris Research talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. To watch a recording of the webinar, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Aloha, this is Roger Bong. I'm excited to host Hawaii Public Radio's newest show, Mauka Tamakai. We'll explore the rich musical diversity of Hawaii across genres and generations, from jazz and soul to rock and funk, Hawaiian and electronic, from Mauka to Makai, and everything in between. Join me every Sunday afternoon from 4 to 5, starting February 6th, here on HPR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Chamber Music Hawaii, celebrating 40 years. The Spring Wind Quintet launches the new season, performing February 13th to the 21st. Tickets at chambermusichawaii.org. If you're looking for something artsy to do this weekend, there is plenty to take in on Oahu. HPR's arts and culture reporter, Noe Tanigawa, here to talk about where you can go to see some great art exhibits. Hi, Noe. Hey, hi there, Catherine. Well, everything we talk about, I just want to say up front, COVID precautions in effect here, mm. okay, proof of vaccination or test required for all of this, but boy, they're going to be... A, some people gathering tonight at Mark's Garage. First, they're having the um, lion dance at 5 o'clock. <laughs> and then they've got that heart for our first responders show. It's works by first responders. I don't know how they had time to do it in the last two years, but they did. And we're going to hear from one of those artists um, coming up with a Lillian song. That should be super. <laughs> and, um, you know, right across the street from Mark's Garage is Arts and Letters. Um, photographer Franco Samaragi has some photographs there of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana when they were just starting out, like their second trip to hmm. Kaho'olawe into the mid-80s. Catherine, it's just fantastic um, visual imagery and a way to reconnect with a movement that has so many echoes, right, today, because at that time, nobody ever thought they could possibly succeed in getting the Navy to stop bombing that island. So really great images there. And then, you know, if you walk along that block, Catherine, there's Hound and Quail right mm -hmm. next to Arts and Letters. It's a wonderful little shop. And then Base Bookshop there. There's a joint exhibition by Lauren Hana Chai and Ashley Ryan Wells. She's a ceramic artist who does kind of contemplative, contemplative looking stuff, um, kind of uh, terracotta-ish looking. Lauren Hana Chai's painting. 
are really bright. Did you get a chance to look at any of them? Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> They're wonderful. They just pop. They really do. And she goes all out and uses neon paint. You, you know, so you can look at these with black light. I haven't done that yet, but that must really be something. And, you know, one painting is a take on a Northern Renaissance painting by Hieronymus Bosch. It's a famous one called The Garden of Earthly Delights. And so she's got this wild color going, this sensual, ambiguous subject matter. And Chai kind of seized on it for her painting, Souls in Motion. This is kind of like my Korean mythological folk version <laughs> of Hieronymus Bosch's painting. But instead of painting about fear, I'm painting more about love. So it's about souls in motion. It's about our bodies, our souls searching for a lover any kind of connection and kind of reaching out in my kind of made up world that I created. And the Little Death series is about the play between sex and death. And I wanted there to be a sense of beauty in it. So I had to remind myself that during the series to bring the beauty in death and see that. But what do you mean? What is that beauty in death? I just think if there wasn't this inevitable fact that we're going to die life wouldn't be as pretty. So there in turn, I see death as pretty as well. So that's just something I wanted to portray in the paintings. Boy, I mean, in you, you know, just applying that intense color to death, the topic, uh, the show itself is really great. Um, ceramics, very subdued and beautiful by Ashley Ryan Wells. Check it out. It's at Base Bookshop. And I want you guys to meet Zach Angelus, proud native of Eva Beach. I first noticed him because he was a featured artist from Mental Health America here in Hawaii. He learned to draw on Twitch live. He said he just trained himself by being there and talking, and he's got a channel there, Catherine. Yeah. You know, so, and he's got, and so I've watched him kind of start drawing on paper, and then he got the letters, you know, he started writing aphorisms. And these are little mottos that he would say to himself, and the letters got bigger and bigger. And he moved on to making handbags and putting the letters on luggage and hoodies and stuff, and the messages gone along with it against negativity and really towards a really uh, full sense of self. That's his thing, emotion and expressing emotions. And tonight, he's opening his first installation. It's called Shelter. And the Skinner, the outside of it, has his letters on it. But the inside, nobody knows what it's like because it's in the mirror room. And hi, Sam. Here's Zach to tell you about that room. It's it's honestly such a beautiful feeling and experience being in that room. It enhances so many of your senses. And so once you're in the structure, allowing your energy to kind of release itself into the space and circulate you know, allowing for moments of contemplation, a moments of, of reconnecting with self, the way that the lights fade, you know, readjust your breathing. It allows you to breathe slower. There's going to be places for you to just really sit. And I think, I think there's the, the concept of rest that's very overlooked. And so what I want people to do and feel in that space is just safety as shelter should. The safety. I mean, here's a super dynamic artist, and he wants to somehow get us to feel safe. <laughs> it's at the High Sand, the Hawaii State Art Museum tonight, six to nine, and then he'll also sit that show uh, mon uh, Fridays, Mondays, and Saturdays, one to one to four. Boy, a lot so, going on. Yeah, you can't be uh, sitting home, be bored, that's for sure. <laughs> well, tonight, Hi Sam is really, they've got a bunch of dancers coming in at different times, too, in the sculpture garden, although the galleries are closed at the State Art Museum. Okay, all right. Well, sounds like there's lots out there, but thanks so much, Noe. I want to go. All right. yeah. Happy Aloha Friday. Get Aloha there. Friday to you, too. We have been talking with HPR reporter Noe Tanigawa. To uh, read her stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. And while Noe just highlighted art exhibits going on this weekend, HBR's Lillian Song sat down with one of the featured artists of the First Responders Art Exhibit at the Arts at Mark's Garage. Alana Coffey is a clinical psychologist who's also a mosaic artist. So you see a lot of people who are hurting, who are healing. And so help me understand, how do you process the hard stories that you encounter, the trauma that you encounter? 
it's wonderful to have the arts as a medium, mosaic artist, and then to have a place that values the created art to show it like at Mark's Garage. It's been a wonderful partnership, but it has been, the last few years have been very stressful and dark and thank goodness that I had, you know, whether it's a hobby or craft or an art or somewhere along that continuum, someplace to put my focus because when you're creating a piece or when I'm creating a piece, it absorbs my mind and it allows me to rest and it takes my mind off of the trauma and you know minutes and precious hours can go by just focused on this piece that in itself is, is a rest it's actually a relief when you say you do this art and it gives you a release where yes. do you go when you start creating your pieces well because i use glass and sharp things like cracked pottery I have to be careful. So I'm focused on not cutting myself or you know, getting it spread around the floor so other people walk on it. Most of my pieces are feminine. I create a lot of mermaids and portraits. So they remind me of people or places that I've been. I'm interested in representing that image or the feeling of that image in a certain way. So that is also a distraction, but it's been something the last couple of years. I've created more work. <laughs> Because we've been grounded only now, just kind of stepping out. You know, sometimes it's hard for people to really express with words. So do you see with this exhibit, would the artwork be another way to express what people might be internalizing? Absolutely. You know, I do use art in my work, too. So especially when we, when we were in person, now it's mostly telehealth, but... I would actually sit with patients on the floor and we would make mosaics or watercolor or whatever it is that they were feeling because people do get, maybe they're not used to speaking. They don't yet have the vocabulary to express what they're feeling on the inside. There's a lot of shame sometimes, some of the experiences that people have had, so they don't want to actually say it out loud because that makes it real. So what we can learn from children is doing art is so expressive. It's like a whole nother language. And um, it's surprising when you get a finished product, you're like, hmm, I wasn't expecting all of that. And it's channeling energy through us. So it is definitely our art. It's very personal and individual, but a lot of artists are surprised that they produce such a thing because they didn't know. They're like, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Typically, When we think first responders, we think EMS, firefighters, police, you know, people with very difficult jobs in the sense that they see trauma firsthand, they're walking to very dangerous situations. And with this new exhibit at the Arts at Mark's Garage, it's recognizing our first responders and essential workers in the field. So that includes medicine, law enforcement, emergency management, social work, and education. Everybody is dealing with trauma at varying degrees. And this exhibit is helping the the community see another side of our first responders and essential workers. We're seeing the human side. It's opening a window for us. When you look at the overall exhibit, what does it say to you? Mm. Keep going because you're not alone. You know, there's so much community. Hawaii just continues to show up for itself um, in some very beautiful ways. And one of the reasons why we're as whole as we are two years later is because of that community, because of all of those members you were just talking about. I mean, we didn't do it alone. There really, there was such a connection and a collaboration between those disciplines, whether it was education, law enforcement, you know, everyone's been under siege and doing an amazing job under a lot of pressure. And then that pressure again came to their families. So a lot of my clients right now are other providers. They're other first responders because we all needed someone and some support because again, it was unrelenting. It just kept happening and kept coming. And, you know, Hawaii's a small place. And when people start dying, then, you know, we all know someone who knew someone. So we just came together We have that ability, and I just really do want to give a shout out to all of the first responders and their families who, you know, held it down. A special nod to the teachers, 
and the parents who have had to watch young children at home and no one knew what to do for very long periods of time. One of the messages that I want to continue to tell people is reach out and reach out, not necessarily to a therapist, you know, neighbors, um, you know, we've in our neighborhood, we, now we have a landslide, so we're kind of cut off from some of our neighbors, but we still have, you know, a phone tree and, you know, there's a, a wireless system where, of connectivity. So stay connected and manage your expectations, though, of people, because when people are hurting and scared, they can give, but maybe not in the way or as much as you wanted or needed. Hmm. Well, for you, it definitely feels like you have this freedom in this process. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Lillian. And aloha, everybody. Stay well and safe and keep creating. That was Alana Coffey, clinical psychologist and mosaic artist, whose work is part of the With Heart for Our First Responders opening tonight at the Arts at Mark's Garage. It's on display through February 12th. Well, that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we continue looking at the battle against invasive species. Are we winning or losing against the coconut rhinoceros beetle? Call our talkback line to share your invasive species stories. Have you gotten close with a cokey frog or something scarier? That's 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. You can listen back to our shows on the Conversation page. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Sobiono, and Lillian Song. Mahalo to John DeMello for our background quiz, Oli, and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday and pick up the conversation.